Welcome to the latest edition of the Tennis Takeaway with the two Barrys. I'm delighted to say that joining us uh, this week, we have uh, two of the uh, foremost tennis journalists covering the sport right now, two tennis correspondents, namely uh, Mike Dixon from the Daily Mail and Stuart Fraser from the Times. And, uh, well, these are interesting times, to say the least. Uh, Stuart, uh, you guys were both in Bath. Uh, What was that experience like? What did you come away from there thinking about Fed Cup and Great Britain and what they're doing? I thought it was terrific just to have a, a home tie, first of all, 26 years ago. Uh, it was the last one in Nottingham. And um, I actually felt that particular event with a round-robin uh, format actually worked very well because uh, you had two separate courts. And it was funny, even when GB were playing in centre court, on court one, it could be, I don't know, for example, Serbia against Greece. And there was a good crowd out there watching that as well. It just shows you how uh, keen... The Brits are to watch tennis. I thought it was a terrific week in terms of the atmosphere inside the arena, the drama, the matches um, were nail-biting. It, it doesn't feel as if GB won every match they played. It felt that so many went down to the wire. And I think the team, particularly Anki Othavong, the captain, I think she was exhausted to come Saturday night. But no, a great return uh, for Fed Cup to uh, Great Britain. It does have a great atmosphere when it's home and away. And of course, that's a big discussion point, Mike, with uh, not just Fed Cup, but Davis Cup and the new format of that. Um, Your thoughts on it? You've been to many ties over many years, but uh, what did you make of it and what they've done with it and and going forward? Similar to Stuart, uh, I I thought it was a great event and... uh, you know, credit where it's due. I think the LTA did a did a good job um, <clears throat> on uh, promoting it, and I think the tickets were you know, very reasonably priced. And the, the, you know, the, the magic ingredient in these things is the partisan support, and it does drag performances out of players and the, and drama. You know, we saw it. You know, great performances, Katie Bolter in in particular, and also from the visiting players as well. I mean, you looked at the Hungarians, for example. She played unbelievably. The uh, Hungarian number, uh, actually, I think she was the technically the number one Bondar, but probably a bit less of a reputation than Dalma Galfi. Um, but I mean, it's, it was a, you know, some really cracking sporting drama, and a reminder of the the extra dimensions that the team events do bring, and and why you know we should should cherish them really, and and make sure that tennis gets this right on on these team formats. You could argue that you know there's possibly be going overboard now certainly in the men's game not in the women's game um, but it really did generate excitement and and you know it gets it's got people talking you know and people are arguing on social media about where the next tie should be held and all that and there's only one thing worse than being talked about that's not being talked about you know and it does get people going and and from a media point of view it provides good stories and copy as a your days uh, playing it representing Great Britain as well. Do you think it is something that, uh, you know, from the women's point of view had to happen because they, they were being starved of oxygen somewhat, weren't they, by the lack of uh, home appearances? So this is a vital time for them to really sort of build on what they've achieved in the last few days? Yeah, they would have looked at what the the British men have achieved in the last few years and looked at it with envy, and rightly so. And I find it sort of interesting that, you know, we're, in the Davis Cup, we're going away from the home and away tie. But that's what all the British team were talking about. We won a home tie. We, it was actually irrelevant who who they got drawn against, which I thought was quite fascinating. Um, and also the the fact that it was three matches in the one day and, and agree with Stuart and Mike. What was amazing, you look back at the four days, Britain didn't lose a match. 
But it didn't feel like that. It felt that almost every point, every game, the the, the whole momentum could swing um, one way or the other. And you know, I thought thought Conte did incredibly well. And I was going to ask the guys actually what what they feel about the situation with Joe after the second set. And she had that delay. Definitely helped her. But whether that's something that the authorities should look at in terms of changing the rules. Uh, yeah, I, I I think they should. Um... We see it so often. I un- totally understand that it was difficult for, for Joe in that moment. She never fully went into the, the reasons behind it. But um, we, we know how anxious Joe can become in the court. And I think it all became quite overwhelming for her. Um, that pressure, it, it's funny because she's played a semi-final here at Wimbledon. But actually that atmosphere was quite unique. I think you had... You know, you're playing for your country. You have your teammates sitting courtside. I think it got to her. And she got a bit overwhelmed by it all. But you could argue that, well, you know, a player out there should have to deal with that. If they suffer an injury, it's one thing, but it all became a bit too much for her. But in general, we do see that too much in the tour, for sure. Actually, Joe has been guilty herself of going for toilet breaks that last too long, maybe seven, eight minutes, for example, before she returns to the court. She's not the only one in that, so... Something does need to be done about it. Mike, you have uh, just come back, actually, from uh, Madrid and the draw for the Davis Cup, and you had the chance to talk to Gerard Piquet, who's obviously the, the, uh, the force behind the new deal with uh, his company, Cosmos. Um, what did you make of that and his chat with you? How did he come across and, and what he's trying to do? Well, I'm very impressed with his manner. Uh, he's clearly a very bright guy, very personable, affable, and pretty smart as well you know he's kind of quite careful what he says quite measured so from that point of view pretty high marks uh, I would give him I mean I'm slightly concerned about where all this is heading Uh, my my personal view about the Davis Cup and as you know it's something quite close to my heart I really I think the Davis Cup's brilliant you know and uh, anyone who's been around the game for a while and has actually covered a lot of Davis Cup matches you know witnessed some amazing sport and, and had a few laughs along the way as well you know and some great stories and everything it's, it's really been a great thing to be part of I think Madrid might be better than some skeptical people are saying I just you know I just think that you know if people give it a chance they could create a pretty decent event if enough fans come again it's that magic ingredient of partisan fans it's a very accessible place it's also pretty accessible from South America I mean he was talking about trying to make sure that people from Chile and Colombia, Argentina come. You know, so that could all work, I think, quite well in in Madrid. It'd be something new and people don't like change, but I'd give it a chance. I am worried long term about this prospect of it going to Indian Wells because uh, I just can't see how you are going to capture that kind of partisan atmosphere in a place like uh, Indian Wells I mean we've all been there and it's obviously an incredible facility and brilliant stadiums and all that but you know if you've got a few OAP expats waving little Union Jacks or you know little national (laughs) flags around it's really not going to cut it is it but I'm worried that the financial responsibilities that they've signed up for are going to be such that they're going to you know Larry Ellison's incredible wealth is is going to be irresistible and we may go there for this event in a few years and it just loses its you know its magic and that that 
you don't you, you don't need to be a rocket scientist to work out that that scenario could happen. I mean, let's see because you know it's a sort of new venture, and I think it'd be unfair to sort of write anything off. But that that does concern me a bit. And you mentioned about changing the date, Mike, because it just can't work, can it? If it's in Indian Wells the week after the ATP finals. Well, I think obviously that's where they're. I think every you know everyone knows that it's a pretty open secret that they are trying to find. Uh, another date and it's not really very satisfactory having a draw in February for something that's happening in in November you know that's that's far too long a sort of gestation period although it, of course it will allow it them all get everything ready I guess and logistics and everything um, but I the date clearly and we all know is is you know it's highly unsatisfactory and and really the event's going to stand or fall ultimately I guess on whether the top players turn up, and there will be players who won't turn up. I mean, you know, Nadal has signed up. How often? I don't know. Stuart might might know this. I mean, how often is he fit in November? I mean, uh, hasn't he missed something like seven ATP World Tour finals, or not completed them, or something? Um, so you know, Novak seems to be playing his cards close to his chest about whether he's going to play. We know Federer isn't going to play. Switzerland haven't qualified. So. You know, it's Zverev as well, I think, has already said that he's not going to play. They're putting a brave face on it, the Cosmos in PK, you know, saying that they're, they're, they're proud to have it at the end of November. But I think if you if had a free choice, it wouldn't be there. Yeah, reading what he said to you in the piece you've done from, from the draw about it's there for the long term, they're in for it the long haul, wanting to get players perhaps who do play in the first one to kind of pass it on, tell the others how good it can be. How how vital is it, Stuart, though, to have, you know, a good smattering of the top guys? It obviously helps to have them, but is it absolutely vital to have that? Because Davis Cup, Fed Cup, as we've seen, can have great stories without necessarily the very best in the world being involved. Yeah, that's a good point because I agree with Mike. I think we have to give the Madrid event a chance. I think when we're all there and with the, the different countries, different fans there, I think it actually that week could be quite good. But the problem is that this whole reform change was sold last year by, by David Haggerty in particular actually he told me in an interview the reason we're doing it is to get the top players to play we have to change something and so far listen, let's see what happens uh, come November but there wasn't exactly a great turnout for the qualifiers was there and Djokovic's already been quite negative about it, Alexander Zverev he's been particularly vocal about it, he, he's he's not going to play at all it's much better if the top players are playing. This is this was the reason the changes were made. And if they're not there, and then six weeks later at the ATP Cup, you have all the, the, the big names there, and you, you will because they need to prepare for Australia. There's ranking points. There's decent prize money as well. I think that sort of lowers the value, really, of the Davis Cup. I don't get this top players plan, to be honest. I think what's more important with the event is whoever's playing, whatever country is, is competing... It's got to be full. It's got to be an atmosphere. I mean, if you have if you have Djokovic playing for Serbia and you have him playing Nishikori and you have him playing on the main court in Madrid and you have two thousand people watching, to me, that's not a great watch. But if you have Tiafo playing Chorich, which I watched in the semi final of the Davis Cup last year, mm-hmm. with the pressure on, and one guy handled it brilliantly, I don't think it was any surprise that. Chorich had the year that he had. One guy who at the time in Tiafa who didn't handle it particularly well, but learnt from that experience and we've seen how well he did in Australia. For me, that is what the Davis Cup 
is all about. And I, I just think that got to remember actually that's been the magic over the years and you know, we've all followed some incredible ties and we've been at some finals Barry my memory is not oh it was Djokovic or Federer or it's just the occasion that grabs you of course underlying all this is the ongoing power struggle in the sport the, the governing bodies uh, and you guys having covered it for the time you have and and been in Melbourne where it all kind of came to the fore again What's your latest take on, on, on how it is going? What do you think might happen? Is there, is there going to be any kind of major move, major sort of shifting of the tectonic plates of tennis to, to change the way it is run, or are we going to be in this situation for years to come? What's interesting is if you, if you talk to the main protagonists, um, someone like Chris Commode, for example, who's adamant that he is very prepared to talk in a collegiate way and try and find a way out of the uh, various impasses that there are. And, and everyone kind of makes the right noises. But it, you know, this is a sport where it's very difficult to get people together to do stuff. I mean, just back to that thing about what happened with Joe Conta in Bath. I mean, to me, it's extraordinary that there isn't a sort of standing committee from various constituencies of the game who are sitting down trying to sort of smooth out the rules and put a stop to sharp practice. What, why can that not happen? I just don't understand why someone can't convene, you know, wise people to sit down and, and sort these things out. And, you know, we hear you know, in the media, you hear a lot of emollient words about this, but you don't see a great deal of action. I mean, clearly it's unsatisfactory having... I think it's within about 112 days or something, the Labour Cup, the Davis Cup finals week, the ATP Cup. And actually then, actually the month after that, there's going to be the the next year's Davis Cup playoffs. I mean, this is not a satisfactory state, and, state of affairs. And potentially a Hopman Cup style event, which could be after well, the US Open. Yeah, I mean, you can have too much of a good thing, can't you? But people <laughs> understandably will... We'll, we'll get confused. You know, I, I just, it really, if you can land someone on the moon, you really should be able to sort this stuff out. I mean, ideally, someone comes in, rips the whole thing up, you rip the calendar up, you start with one body and then everything gets sorted. But that's never going to happen. You've got so many different bodies involved in tennis. Um, that's, that's a fantasy world, that is. I mean, uh, yeah, like stuff like, ideally, you'd move the Australian Open a bit later, maybe to February or something like that. But... Listen, there's just uh, there's no way it's going to happen. There's going to be moments where, you know, there's there's more disagreements. Uh, last year was was particularly bad, and and actually particularly now the the Grand Slams, the level of competition between them now. In fact, I think that's created a lot of the problems. Uh, Tennis Australia's ambitions, and and you know, rightly for them, they feel that they can, uh, you know, do much more with their event, and they have. What a change! I mean from when I first went as a fan there in 2008, the, the change in the site in the tournament is just incredible. But um, that's annoyed other tournaments. And, um, yeah, I just think that's going to be the way it is from now on. In terms of what was actually happening on court, Mike, what you saw, what you reported on, and Osaka coming through to win again, having won in New York, and Djokovic coming back and, what, winning a seventh title there... Um, how would you assess them in tennis terms of what they've achieved and, and where their games are now, where they're taking the game? Well, I thought Djokovic, you know, it's pretty hard to play tennis better than he was playing it by the end of that tournament. I mean, Rafa was 
I think he was really shaken up by it, actually. He was very nervous at the start. I, I thought one of the interesting things, Rafa made this very long speech at the end, and I think he was almost stunned, you know, uh, just... He was kind of like really kind of waffling on, wasn't he, after the <laughs> match? Which can do. Yeah, um, but I think, you know, he was really stunned by just how good Djokovic is. So it's not a very original opinion, but, you know, it's hard to see anyone else really having much of a say this year. You could see him winning pretty much everything, I, I, I guess. Uh, Osaka is, you know, she's cut from different cloth. And she's, that's amazing effort, really, to to back that up. Um and particularly as it appears that, you know, there was sort of must have been something going on behind the scenes um, for this very strange uh, announcement that we had last week about um, getting rid of the coach. What do you make of it, the announcement? Because, I mean, we've got the unique situation now, haven't we, in the women's, that the last four Grand Slams winners are no, no longer with their coaches. Well, it's, I mean, it's... You know, if you've been around long enough, there's not a lot surprises you about some of these coaching changes. And, uh, you know, we've all seen it going back uh, many years. I mean, the one thing you know for sure is that it's, you know, there will be some reason behind it. I mean, there could be all sorts of things. Sometimes it's money. Um, who, who knows? But uh, there'll certainly be more to it than, than meets the eye. I mean, there's all, every time these splits come, there's usually, usually, not always, but pretty much always... You know, there's a soft words and they sort of agree to be nice about each other. This was slightly curt, wasn't it, this this one? Um, I don't know. It's, and I thought some of the things she said around the time of the final, with hindsight, it, you know, seem a bit lukewarm. With your journalistic hat on, guys, and, and you were there a few years ago when, when Djokovic was trying to win the French to win all four, to hold all four at the same time. It's going to be the same situation now and you have the luxury of being able to interview them after every match. It's going to be the obvious question, isn't it, for, for Djokovic, leading up now to Roland Garros through Indian Wells and Miami. Do you, how do you think he'll handle with the pressure increasing as much as it's going to be? Yeah, I mean, obviously it helps that he's done it before there, uh, big time. I mean, I just remember uh, particularly that, that match, that final against Andy it was, and I think... Djokovic was a double break-up in the, the the fourth set, it would have been. And Andy broke back, claimed one of the breaks back. And Djokovic was so tight. I mean, he could barely hit a forehand over the net. He was so tight. And I, I believe, actually, had it only been one break, then Andy might have been able to claw his way back into the match. As it was, the double break gave uh, Djokovic a good bit of a cushion. But um, this time, yeah, there's a, there's a few fascinating factors at play here because... If Djokovic comes up against Nadal, for example, I mean, as you say there, Mike, that that defeat that will take a lot out of Rafa mentally. He he was stunned after it. His box, those sitting in his box, looked stunned. He sat in his, he sat slouched in his seat. He waffled on a bit in the speech. That will hurt that defeat, and that that'll take a long time to get over. And if he plays him again at at Roland Garros, I think it could be very interesting, but much easier for Djokovic this time because he's done it before, that's for sure. I do think as well, from a neutral point of view, and uh, by the way, I bow to no one in my admiration for uh, Rafa as a, as a person and a player, um, but clearly, you know, it would be good for the tournament. I mean, this him, this sort of serial winning all the time, it has become very predictable I mean, what, what you'd really want, I guess, from a neutral's point of view, is that somebody to burst out of the pack and suddenly come through 
and upset the apple cart, you know. But um, sorry to mix my metaphors there, but um, <laughs> but the you know that's what you would love to see, sort of from an interest point of view. But I do think that 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 is going to take some getting over that absolute cuffing he got from uh, Djokovic, and um, you know the fact that that you know it's not it's not new territory for Djokovic. It's going to help him. And uh, to answer your original question, uh, it's just very hard to bet against. Djokovic if he's got his head screwed on assuming that is the case It'd be fascinating to see what Roger Federer does on clay again having decided to come back to it but aside from Roger anybody else that you watched over the fortnight who you thought yeah they've really stepped up to a new level that you're excited to see how they might be going forward well I'll say in the men's side sits a pass of course you know we, we watched him a lot last year and uh, you know he, he had that great great week and uh, his first Masters title last August, and um, that match against Federer was terrific. Um, his performance that you know had us all on the edge of the, our seats. Really, really excited to see how he kicks on now. Uh, it was funny because at the time, in fact, John McEnroe said it in court afterwards. Oh, it feels like a changing of the guard, and then in the final you have Djokovic against Nadal anyway. But I think it takes it probably a few, a couple of years for you to realise whether that was a moment in which the guard did change. Um, you know, uh, Federer, when he beat Sampras here in 2001, you know, it wasn't for another couple of years until he won his, his first slam. So, um, yeah, it'll be interesting to see how, how he does this year. I think he's a really interesting guy as well. So um, for us, it's really good to sort of have someone like that um, in press conferences. Yeah, he's very quotable, isn't he? Um, but we've had players like I could think back to Andre Medvedev, who was like that, and um, Gulbis uh, for, for a while certainly was, was like that. Were you impressed by him? Are you impressed by him, Mike? Well, I mean, it was, you know, clearly the way he played uh, you know, was extremely impressive. And, uh, you know, he, he's a, clearly a different sort of character. And, you know, the more the merrier of those, uh, as far as I was... I, I do think it's very early days to be anointing him as the next big thing. I mean, there's a history in Australia of people coming through to semi-finals, And we saw it the l- last year with Kyle and uh, Hyun Chung. Um, you know, and that hasn't necessarily been a big new dawn and you didn't really expect it to be and I think possibly we should shouldn't we should temper our expectations about Sitsipas. I mean a guy I think you know is potentially exciting uh with a lot of potential is Tiafo and it it'd be brilliant for the game if you had an, another American star. I mean it's really been damaging I think that that has the Americans haven't really had anyone since uh, since Roddick uh, particularly to really get behind and he's he's got a bit of star quality about him he's incredible athlete real personality whether he's got the game I mean I just you know it's an, almost a joke in the media about this calling of the changing of the guard yeah. because if we all had a pound for the amount of times we'd, we'd read that quote or used it or whatever we'd all be millionaires you know uh I'm very reluctant to use that phrase I, and I don't actually believe in it I, I I think it'll be another couple of years but it's quite interesting it's a good sort of pub debate about who's going to be the player you know is it I mean Zverev he keeps having these blows at grand slams the more that goes on the more sort of scarring I think there is there so it's it's quite I mean right now it's looking like it might be sits a pass but come the French Open it could be you know somebody new again but I remember Roger Federer being somebody that we were expecting so much of in his early 20s. And he had that very painful loss to, was it Horner, at uh, the French Open. 
back in uh, 2003 and that was kind of the line in the sand for him wasn't it and then he came here and won and then of course launched this spectacular career you had a question for mike i think yeah i was gonna do you remember what you wrote about when federer did beat sampras was that the change in the guard well, for you? I think, I'm not sure I actually wrote that match because um, I wasn't the tennis correspondent at, at, at the time. I do remember it. So I think I was here in some capacity. Was that the year Henman beat him uh, immediately afterwards? Yeah. I mean, that was impressive of Sitsipas because he beat Roger and then he backed it up, didn't he? Which Roger didn't uh, in 2001. Uh, Tim beat him after that, didn't he? It's quite difficult to follow those up. Um, so the answer is no, I can't remember. Um, and in fact, I can't even remember I actually I wrote the match. But um, <laughs> the, um, <clears throat> is Sitsipas another Federer? I doubt it. I mean, he's going to be pretty good if he is, isn't he? Changing tack a bit, we mentioned the, the Osaka coaching situation and others as well. But in terms of this debate about whether there should be coaches, the role of the coach in a match, uh, the controversy we had with Serena Williams last year and Patrick Moritoglu, in New York. Uh, your view on, on whether it should be, whether it would be good for the game to have it or whether, no, it is an individual sport out there if they're not playing in a team event and they should sort it out themselves. Yes, uh, obviously at the moment Wimbledon and the French Open dead against it. Uh, US Open, the Australian Open, actually keen to extend the trial uh, into the main draw. Um, I, I'm not so I'm not so strong in it to be honest. I, I I wouldn't mind if it was introduced. I actually enjoy watching the player the coaches come on in, in the WTA tour. Um, I think it's quite interesting to to sort of uh, hear what they say to the player, the body language, looking into different aspects like that. I do think though, what, one thing that should be allowed is shouting from the box. Coaches do it anyway. Just allow it. Of course, then it gets the point. When does a coach then go overboard? Do they start, you know, holding up bits of A4 paper, you know, hit this way or whatever else, um, follow this partner play? Um, I think that should be allowed. Uh, co- coaches do it uh, just about every match they sit in the box for. So allow that. Um, yeah, the, the, the debate's still to be had on whether then at slams coaches should be uh, walking onto the court. I mean, it'd be an interesting one at Wimbledon because... Uh, you know, would you force the coach to uh, wear all white, for example? Yeah, it's a good talking point. And that is, I mean, can you imagine how, you know, some of the way some of these coaches dress, somebody that say a bright orange T-shirt and beach shorts, you know, and, you know, black sneakers or whatever sort of comes on to the, the jogs on between I mean, the visuals. I mean, I think the visuals are not that great. You know, the women's tour, sometimes you're getting sort of, middle-aged men coming on and haranguing these young female athletes. I don't think that's a great optic. Um, On balance, I don't really... I think I was really anti it at first, and then actually, I must admit, I, like Stuart, have quite enjoyed the WTA tour. You know, I think there have been some really interesting insights when you've you've seen exchanges between coaches uh, and players uh, that has I think been a positive but I just think it's a little bit too fundamental uh, of a change to the nature of the sport the kind of one-on-one and you've got to figure things out for yourself and obviously there are we do see a lot of surreptitious stuff going on between the coach and the adds a little bit of intrigue in itself you know can they do it without being spotted obviously the answer no in the US Open final Um, we all know what that sort of 
that led to. Um, but I'm, I'm kind of, I, I think on balance, I don't really like it. At the next gen finals, as you were in Milan, uh, they used a headset. I mean, so perhaps we can prevent the coaches coming on in multicolored tracksuits or whatever. But do it that way. Would that be a suggestion to, to pursue? I was anti at the start and I'm even more anti now. I don't like it. I think as a sport where you've got to figure it out yourself. And I think one of the biggest problems now, especially with the juniors, and I think it's very relevant to, to tennis in Britain, it's, it's the coach. It's always the coach. And I'm a big believer. There's four balls. As a player, go on your own for an hour and a half. Come back, and I think you'll learn more. And I think there's too much in the women's tour, which at times, I mean, incredible athletes, and you don't get to top 100 now. In the, in the women's tour unless you are in incredible shape. But at times, it is a little bit one-dimensional. And I think and the Kazakina actually has become one of my favourite players. And Rad Vanska, unfortunately, retired, was it last year? But if, you, if you're always looking to your coach to help you, I think it stops that process of you actually sorting out yourself. So I'm even more anti it now. I think also there there's a slight economic argument to it as well. I mean, and particularly and there's a lot of debate in the game at the moment about um, lower ranked players trying to make ends meet and all that. And it just seems to me to be in like another advantage for the millionaires. Like they can go out and hire the best coach or the you know somebody they think is works for them, and then you maybe you perhaps got a player from Eastern Europe on a low budget who maybe he's got like a mate or something or it doesn't even have a coach uh somebody low ranked i think that there, there is that sort of uh that aspect to it you know is it a level playing field what i am for is for the players at the end of the set to be able to see the stats that we as commentators are able to see and then they they can they can work those numbers to how they want to so you know we, we get the benefit of seeing where a player serves on break point, had their first serve percentage. Why can't why can't players be able to access that tool? The one rule change they have brought in most recently is the, well, I say the rule change, but the change in the scoring of using a final set tiebreak, which they did in Australia. They've got plans, obviously, to do it slightly differently here at Wimbledon, where we're we're chatting currently. Stuart, your your view on it? I mean, do you like the fact that the four slams are each doing it their own different way? Yeah, I was thinking about that earlier again because uh, at first, when I, you know, discovered that the Australian Open were going to introduce a, a tiebreak to ten, I thought this is just getting ridiculous now. Another thing that's different between all the slams. Um, but actually, recently, uh, you know, actually in golf, they have I think they have different playoffs for for all the four majors, and I don't think that ruins it at all. I actually think I, I've come round a bit. I actually think it's quite nice in a way to have each slam being unique um i thought the 10 point tie break in australia was, was excellent the, f- the first one was hilarious the main draw with katie bolter thinking she'd won when she got to seven points the crowd cheering and then it had to be explained to her that uh, she still had another three points to win she did very well to, to come through that i i i think it's a good way of doing it because yeah the tie break to seven can feel a little bit short um and i know it, it might only be an extra three points but I think it just it gives the sense that the match is having some sort of extended finale. Um, for Wimbledon, I think I would have I would have finished it at six all. Uh, I've spoken to a few of the players; they felt that way. They they don't see the the sort of uh, added worth in playing potentially an extra twelve games. But I suppose 
you know, it, it, it keeps Wimbledon unique in a way. And again, when we see it play out, we, we might actually think, oh, yeah, it's quite good. Mike, you touched on the fact of um, sort of cost for players and certainly those struggling at the lower end of it. And, and there is a lot of debate going on, isn't there? A lot of comment on social media with people trying to make their way onto the professional tour from this new, uh, you know, the ITF sort of transition tour. Do you have any sort of reading on it yet as to, to how that will go? Is it working? Is it not working? Well, certainly judging by the reaction of, of the players who are at the sharp end of it, it clearly, there seems to be a, a lot of hitches in it, to put it to put it mildly, isn't there? There's a petition, isn't there, that's got thousands of... Uh, I was a bit suspicious of the modern petition that you do online, you know, for, <laughs> on all sorts of things. But, um, you know, it clearly has ruffled a lot of feathers. I mean, change is never easy. It's particularly difficult in this sport, actually, to innovate and change stuff for the better so I you know it, it the sort of worrying thing to me is that I'm not sure they've wargamed it uh, quite as much as they should have done and I think if there were any doubts about it they should just have postponed it um, but there are people out there with real grievances um, about it I mean I'll be honest the, the real technicalities of it you know I'm, I'm there are probably people better qualified to speak about the, the real hard stats and, and, and all that stuff than I am but it is definitely causing a lot of trouble I didn't th I thought the one thing about the old system it was actually quite comprehensible you know and you kind of any you could see a kind of clear pathway to get your first ATP WTA point to going all the way up to play in the in the Grand Slams I mean it was not that difficult to sort of grasp really and this extremely complex do you have players, Great Britain players or players from other countries, Stuart, sort of getting in touch with you or sounding you out about it or, or making their complaints, you know, through social media to you of what's going on? Yeah, I mean, tennis is a sport that can be or is, is definitely resistant to change a lot of the time. But this particular change, I think, has been badly handled. I think the communication wasn't really right from the start. I think a big issue I have with it is that uh, you know, tennis, a 50, there's a 52-week ranking system and the players are told, I think given nine or ten months' notice, that any ATP ranking points at the end of the year, one 15Ks or some of the 25Ks are going to drop off. I think something like that should be communicated more than a year in advance. In terms of British players, uh, one of the British players I can think of it's had a bit of an impact on is Aidan McHugh. You know, it's a big moment for a young player to finally earn their ATP ranking, get that one ranking point, get the ladder, work, work their way up. All of a sudden, all his ATB ranking points were gone and he's only got one world ranking now and that's in the ITF system. That's complicated as well, a dual ranking system. And we, we had the, the ludicrous situation recently that the ITF were putting up a tweet congratulating the new world number one, a guy called Peter Heller, who under the ATP system was about 590, but uh, in the ITF system he's, he's world number one. And actually... Uh, in an interview with the Metro, he's since come out and said, actually, the system, it doesn't really work at all. So um, he's got a lot of complaints about it. Um, yeah, it really has ruffled a lot of feathers, and I think the ITF have, have dreadfully handled this in terms of communication. Guys, we've covered a lot of ground uh, over the last half an hour or so. I think Baz and I, and I'm sure people listening to this, would just like to know a bit more about your actual role as tennis correspondents and how that role might have changed, got better, got harder over over the years mike you've obviously been covering the sport probably longer than i have um and you've covered cricket as well around the world um 
What is it like these days compared to what it was like when you started? Well, I could I, I could uh, whack, go on and on. I could <laughs> be even more boring than I usually yeah. am about this. Um, well, I suppose the biggest change really has been, you know, the, as in a lot of industries, the impact of, of the digital age. Um, and it's happened very quickly as well. I mean, you know, we're not talking going back that long ago, you know, when the the organization I work for, you know, the presence online, really, it's 10 or 11 years, is it? Um, maybe 12, um, if that. And it's that's made a huge change. I mean, everything now happens much more instantly. You know, you're, you're feeding this sort of 24-hour online beast as well as doing stuff for the paper, and the paper's still very important. I guess that, if, if you're asking for one single different thing, uh, and obviously the technology now, it's much easier. I mean... I'm old enough that when I first started local newspapers, you know, we were battering away on old typewriters with little bits of uh, paper that you'd take, physically take over to the news editor. So clearly, you know, the whole technological thing of uh, laptops and all that. Um, I mean, where do you start? It's, it's just, it's very different and people are working a lot harder. Well, clearly you guys are um, the hours you have to do. But it, it is 24-7, isn't it, Stuart? And you kind of need eyes in the back of your head to be across all the, the different kind of social media that players, coaches, fans are using. Yeah, you really you really have to be on top of it in terms of following the right people. It's, I think, I mean, you, you tell me stories, Mike, about the old days when... You know, a journalist covering the Australian Open could maybe, you know, have a nice lion, spot a lunch in Melbourne and then <laughs> head down about 6pm, file, I don't know, a thousand words and uh, be done for nine and be in the bar by ten. Um, that very much doesn't happen now. Uh, it's never happened for me in any case. But the slams, particularly the Australian Open this year, yeah, it's, it's, it's almost 24-7 in a way because... You have to file uh, throughout the day and even throughout the the, the night uh, for for online. You have to be on top of it in social media. I mean, you know, I, f- I follow maybe about, I would reckon about 400 people on Twitter. And if I go off Twitter for an hour and a half, it takes me ages to catch up again. And I find I miss stuff. Um, yeah, really, you've really got your uh, eye on the ball at all times. When you're interviewing the players after their matches, have you already thought about the question you're going to ask before you walk into the uh, press room well i mean i if i ever ask a question it's usually with sort of a game plan in mind you know i mean i'm definitely not one of those people who kind of ask questions for the sake of it there are one or two people who a bit like that but i you know certainly at this stage i'm really not interested in just sort of making conversation with a player so i'm always kind of asking Something with a specific reason, I guess. Uh, I guess in mind. I mean, the, the press conferences actually haven't changed that much. Actually, in, in tennis, it's probably an example of something. I mean, I I quite like the mix zone thing. You know, when they're like we had in Bath, actually. You know, when players come off court and there's still kind of a bit of emotion and adrenaline going, and and it's very instant. I mean, one of the, I tell you something that's changed is the uh, the lack of discipline being enforced on players about when they come in to speak. I mean, sometimes it's like two hours after the match. You know, in golf, they kind of go through this mix zone um, within kind of 10 minutes of finishing the round. I think tennis could lose, learn from uh, from golf. And you could argue, I think, that tennis players probably do too many set-piece interviews. Um, and, you know, and they end up uh, saying the same thing. I mean, 
I mean, I remember after, I think it was Garby Muguruza, when she won here at Wimbledon, and she did this whole series of interviews afterwards. And by the time she came to us, I think we were the 32nd <laughs> interview she'd done. And the, the poor woman, let her enjoy it. Really, what's the point of doing 32 interviews? And, you know, there, I think there possibly needs to be a whole rethink uh, around this area. And I, I, I think sometimes I feel a bit sorry for players when they've won 6-2, 6-3 and not much has happened and they've got to come in and... And it kind of wears them down and it sort of wears you down and it sort of wears everyone down. But obviously, if there's something, a big incident happened, you do want access. At least in tennis, though, the players do come in. Uh, when I started at the Times a, a week or two into my uh, new role, because uh, it was December, it was quite quiet. I got asked to cover a, an Arsenal Champions League match in Basel. And it was one of the rare times that Arsenal actually finished top of their Champions League group. For years, they'd finished second. And, it, you know, it was a great night for the club. Stand down in the mix zone after, and every player walked through. They didn't stop. Um, the t in tennis, it's mandatory, obviously, for the players to do a press conference, but uh, they, they do come in. In fact, they do extra stuff. You know, you see what Roger uh, does in terms of all the extra languages. And I think last year's Open, you, you put out a tweet, Mike, about the, was it Johnson and Kupka, the world number one and two at that time? They, they, yeah. they didn't stop. Um, so at least in tennis, we can actually speak to the players. Yeah, that shouldn't be underestimated. I mean, the access is extremely good. And, and if you work in other sports, as I've done, you do realise, you know, just, just how good we do have it uh, in many ways. In I mean, I say possibly too much of a good thing, as I was saying um, a bit earlier. I mean, it's interesting. I think perhaps fans wouldn't realise. In, in the media and in sport, there's a sort of correlation between how popular a sport is and how in demand people are towards the access so if you if you say covering croquet or something for example i don't know or a sport that is really hunting for publicity and really desperate to project itself and needs that exposure it's actually you see this at the olympics sometimes you know they, they bend over backwards to try and help you and be available and it's fantastic actually um but then obviously the other end of the scale is football which is the world's biggest sport by a mile Football, particularly, you know, my, I do feel for my football colleagues sometimes, you know, week after week, and the Stuart alluded to, you know, sitting, standing in a mix zone, and some 23-year-old fullback walks past with head, headphones on, and you want to speak to him, and they just walk past you, and then, and it really does, it makes you a bit in awe of someone like Federer, who kind of just puts it in day after day, and, and actually, in the case of Roger. Really, and Andy as well, actually, I think was another one who's worthy of commendation. Really think about their answers as well a lot of the time, you know, and particularly if you manage to ask a question a bit left field or something that's slightly original, they will actually give it some proper thought and come out, you know, they, they often reward a good question by a th with a thoughtful answer. And I, I, I do respect, you know, those players who do that. We've come all this way and we've now just mentioned Andy Murray. So... Let's perhaps wrap it up by talking a bit about what he has done in the time you've been covering it, Stuart, and obviously Mike, uh, and what you think might happen next with him, or is it just we don't know, we've just got to wait and see? Well, yeah, I mean, sort of for me from Scotland, obviously looking at the impact up there, I mean, I just never forget the night after he won the US Open, 50,000 people at Hampden Park watching Scotland play, which isn't an enjoyable experience most of the time, but... 
10 minutes into the match, they started chanting Andy Murray's name. I mean, for who else would that happen? I mean, the impact he's had up there and taking tennis to the masses has just been phenomenal. Um, it was very sad in Australia. I think the moment I realised that things weren't great was that practice match with Novak Djokovic. Against Djokovic, he'd contested so many great matches over the years, particularly in Australia, he played a few against him, um, so many finals and whatever else. And then just to see how much he was struggling, it, it, it was rough to watch. And then uh, it was particularly emotional, the press conference the next day when he had to leave the room uh, after the first question, compose himself and come back. Um, yeah, in terms of will he make Wimbledon this summer, who knows? Um this hip resurfacing operation, hip resurfacing operation is, is is quite a serious op. Obviously, it's worked for Bob Bryan, but that's in doubles. We need to wait and see if it works for Andy in singles. But um, in terms of Wimbledon this summer, even the recovery period, I mean, that's not a lot of time to come back from something like that. So, but the one thing about Andy is you never write him off. So maybe there's uh, still a chapter to come yet. Yeah, I mean, he's such a fa- <coughs> fascinating individual. I mean, I'm. I suppose, in a way, I'm sort of grateful to him, really, in in that, uh, you know, it's been a real boon for me personally to have covered such a talented and fascinating individual as Andy. I mean, over the years, inevitably, you know, we've seen a lot of each other and, um, you know, it's probably fair to say there have been ups and downs with the media. I think overall more ups than uh, than downs, but there have been a few of those those as well. I mean, in terms of his comeback, you know, I don't have any particular insight into how he's feeling uh, right now. I mean, personally, I'd be very surprised to see him uh, at Wimbledon. But he's not an easy guy to second guess because he's such a unique sort of character and uh, marches to his own drummer. You know, if anyone can come back from this and compete again, then it, then it would be Andy. I mean, what I would say is I I think unless a surgeon actually says to him, listen, mate, I'm afraid the game's up. If you want to have a healthy middle age and, you know, play with your kids and be able to play a round of golf, you cannot go back to the life of being a professional tennis player and putting that in. And I I would think unless the surgeon actually says that straight out to him, I'm sure he'll do absolutely everything he can uh, to make it back in some shape or form. But I, you, you've got to say it would be very surprising if that happens by this uh, summer's Wimbledon. And you know him, Baz. I mean, your thoughts now, where we are with him? I'm actually more convinced now than I was last year that he's going to get back to playing at a really high level. Because I think for what Mike is saying, I think even if a surgeon did say, I don't think you can get back, I think Andy would be, I'm going to prove you wrong. And I think that's where he's getting a lot of his energy and motivation and drive from. Uh, I mean, obviously, when, when anyone asks me the question, I'm sure three of you have also been asked the question can he get back to a high level it's sort of like, well what do you mean a high level I mean top 20 I think so because he he would look at it in the Australian Open and say well I'm I'm, I'm practically I'm probably not even 50% fit I lost in five sets to Bautista Agut who made the quarterfinals of the Australian Open who beat Djokovic the week before in Doha and Vavrinka and won the title so when I do have my operation and I'm able to put in the hard yards, who knows what, what I could achieve. But I think realistically, Andy won't know and none of us will know until he gets back playing and he's able to play or when he plays three or four matches in the space of four or five days 
can his body stand up to the rigours of, of, of you know, high-level intensity? I mean, Barry, you would know this, uh, Barry Cowan, because this is the two Barrys, but Barry, Barry <laughs> Cowan on my right, because um, you've, you know, you've done something that none of us have done, which is play at a very uh, elite level. Can you characterise, because obviously there's a big reference point in this has become Bob Bryan and what he's done, he's had the same operation and et cetera, et cetera, that we know. But I mean, can you characterise just how different it is playing doubles the Bob Bryan way to the way that Andy Murray plays singles tennis, which is an extremely physical, gruelling way of playing the game? There's no comparison at all. I mean, it's two different sports because, as you said, you know, not only physically is it grueling, but emotionally it's it's taxing. I mean, that's why the admiration I have for all those big four is that over a decade they've still got that incredible will. So I think that is going to be the part of of for Andy because he is a, he is on the edge at time, isn't he? Emotionally, I think it's what's made him the driving force that he that he has been. I mean, he's a totally different character to Federer. And Nadal, he's sort of more closer to, to Djokovic. Um, so I think until he has that run, I guess we can, we can only guess and second guess. And, and he will hope that everything works out well for him. You know what I, what I noticed in Australia, um, after sort of covering this uh, whole saga for the last sort of year and a half, and I'm sure Michael backed me up in this, was you could feel the weight come off the shoulders when he finally talked about it. For a year and a half, year and a half he's been so secretive about it. His team, you know, haven't been able to say much. You know, he hasn't kept his own agent updated most of the time. I really felt that when he started talking about it in the press conference, of course it was very emotional, but finally he could tell us honestly what was going on because I think for so long he'd hid it. And we have this... Um, so after the press conference, he came into a, a separate room and, and the British papers had sort of an extra half-hour chat with him and he was really open and candid about it. And um, yeah, ho- hopefully from here, maybe that makes it easier for him over the next few months, just having it out there. Yeah, it was like it was like the sluice gates had opened because really he you know, kept his cards very close to his chest all all last year and it was it was like this sort of like the dam burst wasn't it you know and a, a lot of it uh, a lot of it came out and I, I i i think it was a sort of cathartic experience for him almost um kind of getting it all out and i think it possibly took on a bit of a life of its own i think even people very close to him from what i gather you know were, were quite surprised you know <laughs> some of the stuff that he suddenly sort of came out with because we sort of filed into that room didn't we whenever it was, it was 11 o'clock on a, whenever it was, Friday the fr- morning. Fr- Friday morning. Uh, so therefore it was only uh, midnight here. And unusually for a tennis press conference, it actually started, I think, fractionally early. So, I mean, we were all madly scrambling, weren't we, to sort of try and get some copy in the that day's paper here. So it was a, it was a, it was a very dramatic, you know, in ter- professional terms for us, it was a pretty dramatic day that. Well, it's been an absolutely fascinating chat with you guys. Thank you so much for joining us on The Tennis Takeaway. And I think uh, we'll say goodbye to you now, Mike Dixon and Stuart Fraser. And Stuart, you've only got about 50 minutes of Twitter to catch up on, OK? <laughs> Thanks for listening. We'll be back with uh, more of The Two Barrys Tennis Takeaway next week. <laughs>